Welcome to the Ditch the Suits podcast, where we get real about the stuff no one in the financial world wants you to know about. Learn how you can better manage your family's wealth while protecting it from financial exploitation and so-called financial advisors. Here's to your financial awakening. Welcome your hosts, Steve Campbell and Travis Moss. Well, welcome back to another episode of Ditch the Suits podcast. Steve Campbell here with Travis Moss. Uh, we are resurrecting a video series conversation that we did in the summer of 2020. We talked about myth information. Uh, these are topics that, especially when it comes to retirement, retirement readiness, these are things that people hear, they read uh, in articles on Google, how much money you should have for retirement, the different parts of how they come up with. And we wanted to have conversations to break some of these down so that you can add context to what might be real, what might be relevant. And so we want to have an entire conversation today about probably some of the most popular myth information things that people hear when it comes to their retirement. Before we get into it, as always, please subscribe, leave a comment. Uh, your reviews mean the world to us. We appreciate this. this is episode number 12. If you missed any of the prior episodes, you can go back and listen to them. Uh, maybe this is the episode that sparks some interest. So don't be afraid. You can go into our entire playlist, listen to any episodes, uh, but leave a comment. Let us know how much this means to you because your um, review might mean somebody else becomes a fan. So let's stay tuned. It's going to be a great conversation, myth information series, talking about the magic number for retirement. Stay tuned. So in this first part of our conversation, we want to break down that there's a lot of quote unquote conventional wisdom when it comes to planning your retirement. Um, you can go to the internet and just type in just about anything when it comes to retirement and you'll get all kinds of articles, top five things to do, how much you need to have saved for retirement. Although this information might be helpful, we need to break down, is this really true? Is it accurate? How does it pertain to you? So we want to lay out maybe some of the biggest conventional wisdoms that we've heard when it comes to planning for retirement and start to dissect them. So Travis, what are some things that when it comes to conventional wisdom, people should be aware about? Well, right off the bat, I think we have to realize that there are forces out there that are are trying to make you feel special and unique. So mm -hmm. whether it's, I think that there's journalists out there or people who write about these things and they're talking about your unique situation and, you know, finding happiness after work and those types of things. And, 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 we have a, a tendency to emphasize the uniqueness of our lives and then de-emphasize the uniqueness of the advice that should be going with it. On the financial advisor side of it, all the finance companies, investment companies that I know of, they all try to make you feel like either special or that you can achieve being special through using their services. Mm -hmm. And a little different than the first example, they're purposely, I think, manipulating this idea that you are a unique individual and you are special and your dreams and goals matter. And the reason why I'll say that is because the conventional wisdom leads to this generic advice that has nothing to do with being unique or individual. I mean, it, it basically right. comes back to here's some junk advice we're going to throw at you. And I'm, we're going to give them some examples, give people some examples and break it down today. But it'll be something like, hey, you know, everybody needs 10 times their salary when they retire. Or everybody can only spend 4% 4 of their investments a year. And as such a lazy, generic way of going about what retirement planning and spending really is like. Yep. But so, so, you know, we've come out and we said, hey, everybody's unique and special, but you all get the exact same advice. 
as if you're all in the exact same situation. Right. So there's a disconnect there between the truth, which is that you're special and unique, but the solution, which is coming off as very disingenuous from a standpoint of it, it's too simple. It's too easy. Well, and if you, and you I, were that, go ahead. You and I had talked about too, for those that might be listening to this very first episode, uh, in our first episode that we did, Your Money, Your Life, we had talked about that the financial services industry is a marketing machine. They are pumping out material to make you as a consumer make it so that you feel like you have to work with them in order to get to the place that they are trying to show yeah. you. Um, but many times, this conventional wisdom, people might say, well, I don't have that amount of money or I'm not set up that way. So like you're saying, you're removing the customization because we've also talked about that wealth and money are two different things. What wealth means to you, the people, the values, the things that you cherish might be your children. Your lifestyle may be different from your neighbor across the street from you, from your coworker. You might have different assets. So when it comes to financial planning, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So these conventional wisdom ideas can at least start a conversation, but there's got to be so much more to it because if everybody could rely on the top five things to do for retirement, we'd have healthy retirees all over the place. Boom, done. Yeah. You don't need financial professionals, but you do. I think the biggest thing though is using this in context to show that you know financial planning is not just buying products. So it's not hey, we're going to show you conventional wisdom, but you're only going to get it through the buying of our products or the things that we do. So we want to break down for you what we hear or tend to hear being the biggest, well, I thought you needed this, or I thought we needed to have that because I read it in a magazine or my coworker told me that or their financial advisor told them that, so I must have to do that. So as we start to go into these, Travis, what are... What are some of the biggest quote unquote conventional wisdom statements that we hear from people and how can we break those down a little bit? Online calculators. Like oh, yeah. when you log into your retirement account, yep. it gives you the the sunshine, you know, your either a sunny day or a shady day mm -hmm. type of thing. We have that on our 401k. You, you log in and it tells you, uh, are you going to make it? Are you on how's, retirement, how's your retirement sunniness looking like, right? Yep. Yep. It's a big one. And think about that though, because it's not, it's not like a crystal ball, like your 401k at work doesn't know if your spouse has a 401k or if you have a 401k from a different company, or if you got an inheritance or an investment account, someplace. it doesn't know anything. Right. All it knows what's in there. I mean, they get this wrong in the, you see all the time, the prepare, retired preparedness and the, the big crisis with retirement where the average person in their fifties only has $40,000 to their name, according to 401k company, so-and-so. But the only thing they can do is take the total number of participants and divide by the balance in a plan. They can't cross-reference it and add up all the different plans people have money in. Right. So they can't do that in that calculator either. The other issue with the calculators is kind of junk in, junk out. Like clients come to us and hire us because we can also help break down some of the variables, like discussions yep. about inflation, spending more early, spending less later, those types of things. What happens with, you know, if you need elder care, if you're not an expert on that stuff, how do you, how do you put that into the calculator? Yep. How do you account for that stuff? Well, and think about what that does. You know, we had done a presentation at one point and said that your retirement account is not a retirement plan. And people were like, yeah. what's that mean? Right? That's your retirement point. account, your 401k is a retirement account. That is not a retirement plan that takes into account your entire life, your spouse, your kids, your 
pension, social security, your tax situation. That's what a retirement plan is. But a lot of times then what you're doing is you're you're cheapening the experience by looking at your 401k, a retirement account and saying, can I retire? So you're, you're right. kind of, that's like watching a part of a movie and giving it, getting a sense that you have, you know, how it's going to end or what's going to happen. You, you would never do that, right? So Online calculators, that's a big one. It can cause you to either feel really good about yourself or cause you know some concern as to maybe we're not doing all that we should be. So that's a big one. What about the magic? Uh, at, when we were growing up, I think it was a million dollars. I remember yep. my parents talking about, I got to get to a million dollars to retire. I, I think it's higher now. Um, we were just talking about this. What is it now? At like Mul- multiple million dollars. Yeah, multiple depending on your age, you have to have multiple millions, millions yeah. at this point. Right. So it's how many people are going to have multiple millions by the time that they retire, right? Yeah, and that's kind of weird to me because I know people who don't spend any money, and I know yep. people who spend a lot of money. That means somebody might mean need not multiple millions, and somebody might mean might need a lot more than just a couple multiple. I mean, there's some people that will just spend. Doesn't matter how much money they have there. Um, but it basically assumes, like, if I say I have to have three million dollars retire. It, I'm essentially assuming that everybody who has $3 million spends and has the same life and estate goals that I have, mm-hmm. same philanthropy goals, everything. It just doesn't make or it's the same tax situation. Think about it like this too, because we talked about years ago, we wrote an article about you know the secret. I forget what, it, what the title was, but it was basically about you, you might be a millionaire and not even know it. Yep. If you have a pension, Let's say you're getting a state pension for $50,000 a year. That's essentially the equivalence of a million-dollar account. So when you look at your balance sheet or your investments, do you count that? Right. So regardless of whether or not the $3 million is the right number, if you're looking at that going, man, I've screwed up in life. I've been, I haven't been able to save enough. I guess I'll never get to retire because I got to get to $3 million and I only have a half million in my retirement account, but you have a, a $100,000 pension. Yep. You're, essential, you're almost there already. You know that, and that's that's not even talking about the fact that that three million dollar number is just blatantly wrong. Anyway, it needs to be customized to your uniqueness and your situation. But we don't even really understand sometimes how to add everything up to get to that number, right? Or understanding people's situation. If you're married, you have a spouse, significant other, and they're working, they may have the pension that you just described, and all you have is the 401k. So when you use that online calculator, it's just taking into account, Steve, what your 401k is doing, let alone it's not taking into the fact of that almost million dollar type of account and a pension. So you may be in better shape than you realize. And I think that there's also a psychological um, thing that happens to people because we, whether we want to or not, we are always comparing our lives to somebody else, whether it's an article saying that I should have so much money at this age and we can either feel better if we're higher than the number than the average of people, or if we're lower, that may stop us from actually doing the things that we know we should yeah. be doing because we're embarrassed or, you know, you don't want to go meet with a financial you know professional because you, you hear the word wealth manager and you think I don't have wealth. So, you, so it's what we're trying to do is break down these things that maybe are talked about in the conference room, especially as you get closer to retirement. You know, as a 30 year old just starting their job having these conversations, probably not. But I would say if in your late 40s, 50s, 60s, you're probably starting to be more consciously aware that there's this time frame coming up that we called retirement. And are you doing the thing? So we've talked about online calculators. Um, can they be beneficial? Sure. But I think you got to have some context as to how those numbers are baked in. 
What are what are some some other big ones, uh, Travis, that we typically hear as people come in and meet with us, or or they ask questions at events we're at? Well, I think some of some of it. I mean, you can even tie into the end result is sometimes from those online calculators. Like right. normally, they're going to be based on some kind of income replacement. So people will come up sometimes and say, "I've heard I have to replace eighty percent of my income or seventy five percent of my income." Yep. Um, all of this, though, talks to trying to create confidence is really what it comes down to. Yep. Right. So, so you're trying to look at a pile of money and say, should I be confident that I'm going to have enough money when I retire one day that I, I don't have to go back to work when I'm 80? Mm-hmm. The problem is, is like if I say to you, yes, you need to replace 75 or 80% or 70%, whatever the number is of your take of your pre-retirement income. I could be giving you false confidence because you might need more because maybe in retirement, you want to travel around the country. Yep. Maybe you brown bag your lunch every day and, or have a cafeteria at work where lunch is really cheap. And when you're traveling all over the country playing golf, you're going to be eating out all the time. Your budget's actually going to expand instead of decrease. So yep. if you arbitrarily decided to cut your, you know, cut my income by 20 or 30%, you might be surprised. It can hurt you the other way too. You could have a lack of confidence because you could look at it and say, I'm, I can't get there. Right. But you don't need to because you're not that big spender. In fact, for you, retirement might be hanging out in the garden mm-hmm. and actually not commuting and spending $500 a month on gas, you know, and, and maybe your expenses will actually shrink. And yet, you know, you're throwing your hands up saying, why should I even bother trying? I can't, I can't make this calculator, you know, the, the sunny day happen on my calculator. Right. So I think it's, it's really challenging because I, we get there, however we get there, whether I read it in a, in an article or rather than getting it from the calculator or come up with these numbers, but you know, that the scary thing with that 70% number or 80% number, whatever it is of your current income it has no idea of what your tax situation is. Yep. So somebody with a lower income has to replace a higher percentage of uh, of their income because yep. there's less going to taxes. Somebody with a higher income, depending on what types of income they're replacing that income with, maybe can do a smaller percentage, just even just to stay status quo yep. because of the impact of the taxation in it. So- the number actually doesn't even, it can't even work in theory across different socioeconomic levels because when you calculate in the taxes, it, it starts to make the numbers look really wonky. It, it, we really ought to be focusing more on, and this is what we do with retirees, is what's the take-home number that you're trying to achieve? Not this kind of benchmarking of some kind of arbitrary 80 or 70% number. Well, we're all we're all creatures of habit that we can read what somebody else tells us we should or shouldn't be doing and start to build our life around that. And I know in this um, next part here, we we want to you know add some context to some of what we're talking about and where do these numbers come from? Um, because again, I think a big part of a of a financial planner that's advocating in your behalf, they need to understand what's behind all these numbers. You know, tell me about your life. Tell me about your kids. Tell me about your spending as it is now. And, you know, really trying to break down what are these actual real numbers so that we can say, yeah, does this rule actually make sense for you? Uh, But if you have so much money in your retirement account, but you're making more money than you've ever made in your life, but you're still kind of living paycheck to paycheck because your expenses. So it's really breaking down 
what's unique to your situation and what you should be doing. Um, any other big myths that we hear? You talked about income distribution. I think that there's a couple when it comes to how much you should be drawing down or where the sources of income. Do you want to touch on those a little bit? Yeah, I think, well, there's there's two big ones. Um, one is that, and that's the, you hear somewhere, I've, I've heard as low as three and a half, as high as four and a half or 5%. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, if you Google, how much can I take out of my retirement account a year? You'll get some kind of percentage around four or four and a half percent. Right. So that's one that I think we can break down. I think the other one is, and I've heard this recently a couple of times, that you have to have 10 times your your final salary in investments, which is just a really bizarre. I don't know why 10. I don't know why it's not 12 or 13 or, you know, if there's room to add a slush fund, you know, it's just a nice round number. And that's how, you know, people tend to think sometimes we like nice round numbers. Um, but, um, but back to the four, four and a half percent rule of thumb, that's, that's, there's a lot of academic work that's done on that from a mathematical standpoint for a sustainable portfolio, but it really gets into portfolio design and how you're managing your investments, yep. uh, sequence of return risk, timing risk, as far as when you're taking money out of the accounts, how you're taking money out. I mean, it's that is a really complicated subject and it requires a lot of other things to fall in line. And it's also based on a sustainability factor, trying to you know, give you a probability, so a likelihood that you're going to achieve success over a certain amount of time based on, you know, expectations of inflation and and all these other variables. And I have in reality never, ever seen a client who could stick to that rule unless, and this is a, the, really the only time we use it, unless they actually don't rely on their money like all of their money to just pay their bills. So sometimes what will happen, we've talked about savers and spenders before. Yep, absolutely. So sometimes what happens is you'll get somebody who just needs guardrails yep. or guideline or permission to spend or permission not to spend anymore, right? Or, you know what I mean? Like like they just need some guidance there and you don't, they don't really want a babysitter, but they want a number they can kind of focus on. So we might use something like four and a half percent before we have to discuss it. <laughs> or geez, you're spending one percent and you're feeling like you're overspending. You could spend up to four percent this year or something like that. Well and so, a big part of, a big part of that too, if this is your very first episode, when we say savers and spenders, we've talked about that if you're coupled, married, you have a significant other, it's it's rare that you find two people that brains think the same way when it comes to saving money versus spending. There's usually right kind of tethers to each other. And that's not a bad thing. It's just learning how to get on the same page because if retirement for you means buying that second home, traveling a lot, those are dollars, right? So to somebody that's a saver, that's that's scary because this has always been a, a theoretical thing on paper of you save, 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 save. And yep. then you get to this point called retirement where it's like, okay, can we spend it now? And it's like, no, we can't spend it, right? So it's savers and spenders, some context. It's trying to get people on the same page to having guardrails so that the saver feels comfortable with what is being spent and the spender feels like they can still live their life. And they're not always delaying satisfaction for this time where they may not be able to use it in the future. Well, and and that bleeds into another issue that I think is really prevalent with retirement spending. And it has more to do with self-sabotaging mm-hmm. the concept. So people say, well, I could live off four, four and a half percent. 
And then they combine that with another piece of conventional wisdom. And I know we're not going to get too far into this today, but um, it shows you the damage that some of this stuff can do to you where they say, well, you know, I read online that I should have the, I should get, my investments should get safer as I get older. So when I retire my investments, I, I don't want to be in the stock market anymore because I can't afford, you know, the, the market to dip right. or to lose any money. Or um, I've heard the with conventional wisdom that I should have my age in bonds. So if I'm 65 years old, I should have 65% of my money in bonds or fixed income. That is so damaging because if you are going off the assumption that you could live off of four and a half percent of your investments a year, but you're investing and, and that that would keep up with the fees and inflation, but you're investing literally to make less than that because you've de-risked yourself. Yep. You've actually increased your risk and your likelihood of running out of money inadvertently because you don't know how the two concepts kind of overlap, how they influence yep. each other. Yep. And, and that's why this type of series is so important because it really is specific to you and your situation. We also have people sometimes that you hit retirement because you retire in kind of the, the donut hole years or the, I'm not 62, so I can't have social security. So not all of my retirement money is coming in yet. So I have to take extra money out of my 401k or something. So maybe you're taking uh, higher than four and a half percent for a year. Maybe it's six and a half or seven percent. So all conventional wisdom would tell you, no, bad. Don't yep. do that. You can't. Right. Why can't you? It's just a band-aid. If you can account for the withdrawal of that principle from the portfolio and the portfolio can still cover your future needs, then just because you have a higher than normal distribution in one or two years, that doesn't mean that you like you you just can't retire. Yep. It means you just have to account for the extra spending. But again, it's you can start to see where some of these things that we're reading online or our grandparents told us or you know, our neighbor, you know, or the our friends at the water cooler are telling us we have to be really careful about juxtaposing those onto our own situation where they really they really are not applicable. Yeah. Well, and and you just mentioned something that for the listener, uh, what you just said is, let's say you know you want to take uh, Social Security at a certain age, uh, but you're not there and you have a, a year or two gap that the only tool, and I'll say that, a tool that you have is your 401k. There are people that may not even be using the tools that they have because they're afraid of, you know, if you're in your workplace, for most people leading towards retirement, if Travis and I asked you at a speaking event, how much should you take from your retirement? What's the number? I would imagine most people would know 4% because it's been drilled into them, right? What happens is if you have a year gap in between social security and what you can take, and that number is higher than four, uh, I've I've had people that if it if it's not the number that I was told, we can't do it. And so what happens is that causes strife. It causes uh, concern and unneeded anxiety because people just don't know how to use the money that they have to live the life that they want to live. And I think that's the impetus behind us creating this podcast is the financial kind of space of our life is so under talked about. People don't know what they should be doing and if they're doing the right thing. And I think the number one thing that people ask us when they come in to meet with our team is, am I doing okay? Am I doing the right thing? People want to know that they're doing the right things. And so we've wanted to lay out these big myths 
that people hear, I got to have so much money to retire. I can only take so much of my pre-retirement uh, salary. You can only take so much from your retirement accounts. And you, you have very simple and cute branded things that most people can say verbatim, but it's deeper than that. And there's a lot that goes into these simple sayings, because again, even saying that stocks to bonds, well, what type of bonds are you buying? There's a whole litany of different types <laughs> yeah, of bonds yeah. out there. So it's we say these very simple things, but it's way more complex than just what we say to make ourselves feel good. And in this next part, we're going to really break down kind of how to add context to when you hear this, how can you start to think about your own unique situation to know, should I be talking to somebody? Should I be getting help? How do I bridge some of these gaps? And, and how can I start to make things make sense of, truthfully, maybe things that don't make a lot of sense? So stay tuned. We're going to break down some context next. So we just spent a lot of time trying to make you aware of things you've probably heard when it comes to that quote unquote conventional wisdom preparing for retirement. And if you just listen, it might sound, well, if I don't have conventional wisdom, then what do I do? Conventional wisdom can lead you to failure if it is not appropriately put into context. So what we want to do here is get you excited about retirement, give you some good things to think about. And if you got a window of time before you retire, maybe you can start to think about some of these things and put them into action to be able to retire because it's your money and it's your life. So how can we start to think about conventional wisdom and what are some context uh, and some things, Travis, people need to be thinking about? This is the, the self-help against do-it-yourself section. <laughs> like most do-it-yourself stuff, think if you're working on your house or something, you, you know pretty much right away if you did it right or wrong because you oh, yeah. can see it, right? You fixed, first, yeah. Yeah, you try to fix a pipe and it's either going to leak or not leak, but you're going to know right away if it's leaking because water's going to come out. Yep. Finances is a little bit different because you may not know for years or even decades, you know, yep. the decisions that you make, how they're going to come back and get you. Yep. Um, it's easy to kick the can down the road or kind of hide, hide certain mistakes, especially if you're a high income earner. You know, you can replace losses, that type of thing. So what we want to do is all the stuff that we just talked about where people with the right intentions as far as they they want us to do well financially, we need to throw out all that advice that they all the generic advice that they've that we've been receiving. Right. Right. So even though some of those some of that advice might have come from sources that really want to see us do well or really have a passion to do well, we have to realize that this. This is about the nuances. This is about the customization of advice and the fact that you are unique, you are special, and so should the advice that you're getting be. So like when we when we think about how to protect ourselves, I, I, I start every client, you, it doesn't matter who we're talking to or every prospective client, we sit down, let's talk about the real spending. And most people don't know this number. Yep. Um, and one of the, and this, this is how we blow all the other numbers out of the water. Right. It just puts everything in perspective. How much do you really spend? I'm not asking you what your budget is. I'm asking you how much you really spend. Yep. Which is different than your budget. Yep. It's probably different than your cash flow. Let's say that you have $10,000 a month after taxes. Mm -hmm. And at the end of every month, you got a couple hundred dollars left over and you're waiting for your next paycheck or pension deposit. Guess what? You spent $10,000 a month. So if you were to retire on, let's say, 70% of that, 
what are the $3,000 of expenses you're going to cut? Yep. You have to pick them. So it, it really comes down to your spending and replacing that net spending number. If you're going to retire and that net spending number is going to go up, maybe retiree health insurance is really expensive and it's going to go up. Maybe you're going to be taking care of a parent you know, or an adult child or something like that. And the expenses, for whatever reason, the, you're going to buy a, a vacation home in Florida, the expenses go up. That has nothing to do with your pre-retirement income. It has nothing to do with what percentage of your portfolio you're using. It has everything to do with your lifestyle and what things are special to you and make you feel good. Well, and I think about what you just said with real spending, because you know we had talked about one of the myth informations is I should live on 80% of my pre-retirement salary, right? So if while you were working, you went out to dinner every night of the week and you went and you took trips and you went and you spent a lot of extras because you had the financial means to support that, as human beings, it is very rare that we just cold turkey stop something completely. So if like you said, I got to live on 80% of my pre-retirement salary, let's say you were making $100,000 in your working years that supported your lifestyle, and now you're going to make 80 in retirement, what are you going to start to cut out or do differently if, again, it's great to have a budget and say, I'd like to spend X amount on groceries every week and X amount on going out. But then when we go out, we always get a couple extra things or an extra bottle of wine. And that happens over and over and over again. And we look at receipts and we say, you know, you said you want to only spend $200 a month going out, but you actually spend $500. And this, like you said at the beginning, it is very hard financially, like the pipe in your house or the electrical, that if you do it wrong, you know right away. If you have a series of overspending month after month after month, unless you're really keeping track of that, you may not see the day-to-day -day finances go down as much, but what you're doing is eating the back end of what you are hopefully it, and this is real life. You told us your kids were really important to you and you want to leave a legacy to them. You want to leave as much as you can. Well, what you are doing today, if you don't get a handle on it, is actually going to sabotage what you've told us you value. So it's not that any of these things are wrong, but I think there's a big difference between filling out a budget, right? If you've ever worked with a personal trainer and you want to feel better, they'll say, give me three days, the good, the bad, the ugly of what you've been eating. It would be super easy to send a trainer the good stuff, you know, and act like, well, I want to eat these things, but they need to know what else are you doing that could be hurting you so that we can start to coach you so that we can start to develop good habits. Right. So I think getting to this concept of what is your real spending and unique to your situation and how might that change in retirement so that you can better position yourself today? Well, life happens. Oh, absolutely. You know, even with a trainer example, Sometimes you're stuck out on the road and you're traveling. Yep. And you can't eat a, you know, you eat, I mean, there's just no place to eat a really healthy meal or something. You know, I, right. stuff happens. Life happens. I have never had a retirement plan that I worked on with a client where life didn't happen yep. from a standpoint of they got ill, they needed care earlier than expected. Um, something happened and one of the kids needed help. Somebody went through a divorce. Somebody got, you know, married, somebody had grandkids. They didn't think they were going to, you know what I mean? Like things happen in life and you only get to live once as far as we know. So there's only so much that you can do and so much that you can save for. And I have you know, almost every single scenario, I very few, some client, every now and then you get somebody who is, it's almost like a game to them just to stick to a number. Yep. The number has nothing to do with what they can necessarily afford. It has more to do with their own self-discipline and needing to feel like they're on track. But there's very few people that I've ever seen 
that can stick perfectly to a four and a half percent or, you know, a fixed number when life happens. It's just, if they have the means, they're going to go into the means to make something happen for their loved ones or for, you know, uh, uh, a life event that is important to them. And the planning has to continually adjust to that. Yep. I mean, you have to, too often, I've seen people just break down because they, they can't, you know, they get off track with the plan. They've spent more than they were supposed to spend and they either are too guilty or they say, well, what's the point? I'm just going to quit without realizing that we could, you know, you can, what's the ramifications of that decision and how do you adjust going forward? Well, and I think, but I think go ahead. Yeah, to your, to your point, a lot of times what I've noticed is when people come in to meet with our team, uh, it is very rare that people just have an epiphany one day that I should go meet with a financial planner. There is usually something that either happened to them or to somebody that they know that is a motivator to either not want to feel that way. Uh, either they've lost a loved one, a parent, uh, and they mm-hmm. spent years unwinding what mom or dad didn't didn't do, and they never want their kids to feel that way. So they will call up and want to come in because they want somebody to do a high-level look at what they have and point out those blind spots to them. Or they had a neighbor where the husband died too early unexpectedly. It's those disruptions, right? We spent an entire few episodes talking about interjecting positive chaos into your life. But the reality as human beings is there's also just pure chaos that can be interjected that you you can't account for. Right. So what happens when life happens and you can have these super high level myth information, conventional wisdom things, but they can be thrown away on day one. Right. And so some of the things that you were starting to get into is we spent a lot of time in the first part talking about these distribution rules or rules of thumb. What are some things, though, that people have to take into account when it comes to distribution and planning around that? Well, one of the things that you, you can't actually always plan for, I mean, you can plan for it based on what you know today, but as we've seen over the last four and eight years, really, this will change quickly is taxes. Yep. So life happens, they change the tax rules on you, and all of a sudden you owe more taxes than, than you had planned for going into retirement. And that's going to impact you because one of the things that gets forgotten about most often in retirement planning is the actual impact and how to plan around income taxes, yep, both at the federal and at the state levels and the differences between the two of them and, and how you're taxed differently. A lot of times, most states have some kind of beneficial tax system for people when they get up over the age of 60, for instance, with the retirement incomes or 65, some states are. So understanding what gets taxed and how it gets taxed and how that equates over to the pile of money. We used the example earlier about the pension and the pile of money it would take to replace the pension. Well, if your pension is a state pension and your state doesn't tax state pensions, that's different than if your pension's a, a private pension and, and it would be taxed. So the difference could mean you end up owing just federal taxes on a pension or you end up owing federal and state taxes. Well, the one with the federal and state taxes is going to take a lot more money to cover. And I see people who move to a different state sometimes and inadvertently create more taxes for themselves. They think that they're moving and they're going to reduce their property taxes, but then they create more income taxes or something. And that wasn't part of the plan. Life happened and maybe it was important to move, but they need to account for it. Social security is another great example. Social security is not taxed like the rest of your money. 
there's situations where social security may not be taxed at all. And there's situations where it might be taxed up to like 85% of it for, for, you know, most people understanding the difference between how social security is taxed versus your retirement monies or your cash is, could be a significant um, financial difference. And, uh, you know, being able to account for that is just so important. And that's when you're, when you're, looking at financial planning or if you're looking at retirement planning and you're looking for conventional wisdom, the real wisdom is, is that you're unique, you're special. The advice needs to be tailored to what's going on in your life and your mix of assets and resources, Mm -hmm. you know, your different incomes and all that kind of stuff, um, the different assets that you have and your personal situation. What's the family like? What, what are the kids like? Are the kids, you know, Think about it like this. Let's say you've done a good job. The kids are out of the house. They're in college, but then they come back and live with you. Well, just because you're not buying them clothes anymore or something like that, they're still eating food out of the refrigerator. Yep. You know, there's still other expenses. I'm certain because they're with you. Take them out to dinner maybe more often. That kind of stuff could take out. You know, there's going to be more expenses than you otherwise plan for. Same thing with parents who move in. So these, you know, we just have to account for these things. We have to account for... Life as it happens, we have to account for taxes. We have to account for inflation. So some people, some of our clients are way more impacted from inflation than others. For instance, if you have a high discretionary budget and you like to travel a lot, chances are as you get older, you might slow down and might not be able to travel as much, or you could adjust the way that you travel so it's not quite as expensive maybe. Right. But if all of your money goes towards just covering the utilities and and you know your property tax bill and basic necessities inflation's going to be painful yep one area you can cut back you know living expenses which you would do naturally anyway that's part of the issue issue with financial projections is we project inflation indefinitely as if it's going to go up at the same percent forever when in reality, you also stop consuming as much later on, depending on, you know, that discretionary budget. Um, so the person with a lower discretionary budget is certainly going to get hurt more by inflation because they're just trying to cover their basic needs versus the person who maybe has a $30,000 a year travel budget that maybe just doesn't go up by much every year. And, and you know, they could even eat into it a little bit as they get older and can't travel as much. So, those are all things I think that make it real, you know, that that's, that's what it means to be individual. Well, and projections are so hard too, because depending on your age and, and when you grew up and when you were born, uh, I'm sure many people never thought that what they'd be spending on going out to lunch, dinner, to the movies, to entertainment, what something costs in 2021 versus what it cost 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So if this, if you hear financial words like inflation and you're like, what does inflation really mean? The cost of the cost of living is more expensive today than it was. You know, to have a family with multiple kids now is different from when all of us were growing up and going out to eat, right? And I think when you talk about life happens, what I find many times just listening to people is when life happens and they have a disruption, they can sometimes have a knee-jerk reaction, which can actually fill into what you had talked about. So something happens, a financial need comes up, people don't know what to do because they're busy. People are busy. They have jobs. They have kids. They're taking care of mom and dad. They need money for something. So they end up creating a taxable situation because they need to get money from somewhere. 
but there's not intentionality behind it, understanding the big picture. So they just take it from somewhere because they need it. And then they get a tax bill at the end of the year when it's really financial planning is the ability to help you operate your money business better, to understand that you have different types of tools at your disposal, even down to the different kinds of ways your retirement accounts are set up. So each one of these accounts serves a purpose, your bank account, your brokerage account, your IRA, your Roth account. When you need money, if you have good investments, if you have things happening, people sometimes just take money from somewhere because they need it without understanding. So you can have all these things happen to you in context, not understanding your real spending, then something happens in your life that was unaccounted for, which then you end up doing something as a knee-jerk reaction because you don't have time, expertise, you don't know what to do. And that can lead to creating a taxable situation that may not have ever had to occur if there was more of a plan in place, right? So these conventional wisdoms are good, but if they don't really apply to your life and context of what makes you you and what wealth means to you and what tools do you have, which may be very different from somebody down the street, then you're really shortchanging yourself. And again, I think it's leading back to then, how do we make good decisions? How do we understand some of these things? Because what are your financial goals too as well? What you want to do and the goals that you have might be very different from somebody else. And so the spending, the how to invest money, the stocks, the bonds, high charts and graphs. I mean, these are things that, how do you make, Travis, how do, when you work with people, how do you make sense of some of these things when people talk about pie charts, graphs, numbers, figures, and all the things that they're looking at? So most of that, most pie charts and graphs are done to give you something to look at because if all you had to look at was spreadsheets all the time, you probably wouldn't find it very appealing. Sure. Um, I think that they can give you a really great, you know, mile high overview of sometimes of what's going on. Mm -hmm. They can give you a good perspective. Yep. But I don't think that they, I, I think that they're a tool used to illustrate, but they are not, they can never be definitive. Right. You know, when you're talking about coming up with a projection about all the different ways life can happen, the chart that's showing you what the future has in mind is not going to work. Yep. Um, any Anybody who bought life insurance in the 1980s, when you saw your life insurance cash value chart, every single person who bought life insurance in the 80s should be a millionaire by now, but nobody is because of their life insurance. Right. Because the charts didn't work out. You yep. know, you see the pie chart and they say, oh, look at my pie chart. Look at all the diversification investments I have. And then this person over here has only got three. Yeah, it depends on how you categorize things. Because you right. probably break down those three into about a hundred different little pieces too, so we can use it as a as, as talking points. Yep. But that's not that's not advice. That's not that's not good guidance unless everybody uses the exact same charts. You know, so we have to be very careful on over reliance. I think that they're good to create the conversation, um, and maybe maybe emphasize a point, but not good as far as helping us understand completely what's going on. I think, you know, you mentioned your money business and running your money business and really trying to make good, solid decisions that you would as if you were running a business. Yep. So I think that the big point with all this is if you understand better the questions to ask and that this does need to be customized to you individually as a person right. or a family, um, then you are less likely to force 
things that don't go together. That's good. So we talked about confidence. You're you're less likely to have overconfidence, which could make you help. It could lead you to making decisions that end up hurting you. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I have I have done so good at investing, and I have more than ten times my salary. So I'm gonna make my money super conservative now because I'm done. I got there. Well. It, that kind of depends. Now it may not continue to grow enough to keep you there <laughs> or or a lack of confidence. You might be looking at that pie chart or that sunny day chart, you know, or the bar chart and be saying, boy, it doesn't look like how, no matter how much I save, I'm ever going to get there. But you didn't take into account that that didn't include your pension or your social security right. or the calculation they had. Maybe that's your, maybe you had a successful career someplace and then you're doing this part-time work someplace else and they're accounting for your current income, not your historic income, you know? And, and so you're just getting a wrong number. I mean, this happens all the time when, with these online calculators, you've gone online and you've pre-populated the info and it's spitting out a number and saying, this is what you need, but it put in a three and a half percent inflation number on all of your, your expenses, even though half of them will go away when you retire. So it's going to tell you that there's no way you can make it. So you have no confidence then. You just feel like you're never going to make it. So what's the point? Mm-hmm. And yet, you, you know, you go through life and what are you missing in life where you could have been financially free and you never knew it because you didn't, you know, this calculator was misleading. So I think that if, if we're approaching this more like a business and, and one of the principles to managing a business that we talked about earlier on a, on a different episode was... This idea of getting professionals to help you who can break it down. If you're talking to a professional and they're giving you the generic advice, get a different professional. That's my advice. Yep. The only time you should be getting generic advice is if it's more on the behavioral side. If it's just trying to keep you kind of within the guardrails, like you said, kind of like, you know, you're playing bumper bowling and I got to stay in the lane. doesn't matter where in the lane I stay. I just got to stay in the lane. Yep. Then some of those, some of that generic stuff helps, but which one do you apply? Which yep. generic advice do you apply to your situation? I mean, we rattle off a whole bunch of them and they're all at odds with each other. They all compete with each other. Right. So which one's right? None yep. of them are right. It just depends on the situation. And I think that that's, you know, there, there's a relationship between all these things. Yep. And you and I, when we set out to have this podcast, said that we wanted to be unapologetic. Um, we want people to get the information that they need to live their best life with their money, their life. Um, you can find any financial planner that can meet these criteria to help you drive your values. Uh, when we talk about money business, we spent two or three episodes talking about the fact that you may not realize that you operate a money business, but you do. You, your spouse, you as an individual, you have yep. assets, you have tools, you have a home, you have investments, you have social security, you have your pension, you pay taxes, you have an estate. Businesses have those things. So we're trying to give you examples from business that then you can apply to your personal life because we will spend a lot of time at work building a company for somebody else or if we are courageous enough to start our own business and we can control the strings, the levers and how it works. We spend a lot of time in building something in our working career. But when it comes to our personal money, we don't apply that same level of dedication, intentionality, maybe because it's not something that naturally we're, we, we don't know about, or we're just embarrassed by it. So Travis and I are trying to give you things to think about 
And we had talked about our financial planning process. The reason that we're talking about all these things is the collective years of experience of having maybe conversations that people have never had with a planner before, because there's so much more that goes into just the conventional wisdom, simplistic statement followed up by a financial product, and then we'll see at some point down the road. There's a lot of transactional things that happen in the financial services world. And who's who's stuck holding the bag? You, the consumer. So we are trying to illuminate to you that this is a process. Each one of these things that we are breaking down deserves time and attention. It deserves the expertise of somebody coming alongside of you to say, what is your real spending? What could inflation look like? What if there's a disruption or an untimely death? What is your tax situation? What if the tax law changes? And in this next part, then we want to talk about the relationship from retirement planning and investment planning, because we want to add some context to then how do you start to put some of these pieces together in understanding um, the relationship between the retirement plan and the investment plan? So in the first part of this uh, podcast episode, we had talked about the myth information um, when you're investing with your age, as you you know get closer to retirement, how you should start thinking about investing. Well, a big part of retirement planning is understanding the investment planning component. So we want to spend a little time talking about the relationship from retirement planning and investment planning. So what does your age have to do with investing? I mean, there's there's just... I don't understand it. If you're, what people are saying when they say that is if you're 60 years old, you have to take less risk than a 55-year-old. And in theory, because you're closer to needing your money, let's pretend you had a $3 million retirement account. Are you going, so you're telling me that you're going to spend all $3 million coming up pretty soon. I mean, cause you're implying that it has to be safer because you're going to need to spend it. Yep. So you're going to, you're going to go cash that $3 million or, or a larger proportion of it than you otherwise would have when you were 50. Like it just, the, the, it's too simple, mm-hmm. right? The, the theory behind it actually doesn't work that well. For instance, let's say that you've invested well your entire lifetime and you had a nice four or $5 million portfolio. And it's because you've always had about a 60, 70% stock mix. Yep. Now that you've hit your 60s, you say, you know what? I should just get safer because, you know, they they have this equation out there that I should have ha- equivalence to my age and, and fixed income so that my, my portfolio doesn't drop as much. I, I've had people actually say, I don't know if I have enough time to see it recover. So I, I want to be safer. Yep. Well, if you're not here to see it recover... <laughs> You don't care that it dropped, number one. Or if you're leaving it to your kids, they should be investing long-term anyway. So it should all be the same to them. It shouldn't matter to them. Right. But so you're telling me for the last 40-something years, all the horrible stock market situations you've been through, you know, think just the 2008 recession, right? Yep. The finance crash. All that you've been through, you let it go up and down all that time with faith that at the end there'd be more money. Yep. And now you're there and you're you're essentially saying this is the end. And I'm going to ignore what happened for the last 40, 45 years. Why? Because somebody like wrote an article someplace, or I don't even know where the theory comes from. Right. That says just because you hit a certain point on the calendar, it's over. You should be done. No more. You know, so maybe the argument is why well, should be safer. 
uh, because I'm going to use more of the money. I'm going to distribute money. Well, there certainly is a difference between a growth portfolio, one that you're really long, you're not going to take any money out of, and one that you're going to start using for income. Right. Well, it's not that dramatic of a shift. It's not saying I can't have any growth <laughs> because, you know, I come up with a re. I don't really know what the reason is. It's just this kind of well, I'm getting older, so I have to have less risk, and that's that's really a dumb. If anything, you know, from a statistical standpoint, if you're closer to mortality, you can actually afford more risk because you have less time to need it. So there's there's less compounding factors that can hit you. So the whole the whole thesis doesn't make any sense in reality, in full practicality with how people use their money. What you need to do is think about your portfolio as two separate compartments. So take a piece of paper and draw a line straight down the middle. On one side, you have your, we'll call it safe and rainy day money. On the other side, you have it growth money, money that you want to grow. That safe and rainy day money, as long as there's enough in there to cover your expenses, and there's there's a lot of work that goes into getting to this number, but just to make it simple, as long as there's enough money in there to cover your expenses, what do you care what that growth money is doing? Right. It's going to go up and down just like it always has your entire life, yep. up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And you're going to try to take advantage of it, right? When when stocks are high, you try to sell sell high, and when they're low, you try to buy low. But you're going to let it go up. It doesn't matter if it's up 50% or down 50%. It's going up and down, up and down, up and down. Because you have the protected side of your account, the rainy day fund is there to cover your expenses. Yep. That's your pie chart, actually. we when we when A lot of times we're looking at our statements. We just look at just the final result. Mm-hmm. If you actually broke it in half and said, here's my growth money and here's my rainy day money, what you notice is rainy day money doesn't move much. You know, up and down a couple of a percent overall, maybe averaging five percent, and then that growth money is all over the place. But yep. long term averaging maybe 12 percent, and then yep. you average them together and you get to your eight percent a year. So if we can actually break it down, just even in that simple format, mm-hmm. um, taking into account all the other things that we talked about, you know, figuring out your life and your situation and your real spending and how inflation is going to impact you, how income taxes are going to impact you, what would happen to you if life happens, some of that contingency planning. We can actually start to build portfolios or retirement uh, accounts, investment accounts that are more agnostic to really what's going on in the market. Meaning you can pretty much just roll in and say, I've got a pile of money that matches up with my needs. And I've got it invested in a way that makes sense for my situation. For instance, if I need to try to make 7% a year to support my spending, I have to be invested to make 7% a year. The challenge that most people run into is that we try to do the investment part first, and then we ask all these other questions later. Mm -hmm. So we started this out about conventional wisdom, really focused on how, how big the pile of money you have is. Well, why don't you come up with your where you want your life to go and figure out the price tag first? Yep. And say, now how much of the pile of money do you need to match that? Because that'll take into account how much is covered by your pension, your social security, other income sources. Yep. The delta is what needs to be replaced by investments. And depending on what you have to work with, that'll dictate whether or not you can be conservative, aggressive, 
you know, you can hide it all under the mattress or you got to get it working for you. Um, but it helps you uh, avoid really the generic kind of, this is how everybody should be doing it. You should too, because I'm going to tell you what, I've never seen two clients that are exactly alike. There's always some kind of nuance, whether it's philanthropy or the kids yep. or the different types of incomes, or maybe there's a small business or a rental property. There's always something in there that makes it a little bit unique and it throws that, that conventional wisdom off. Um, but if you have good planning, that's going to drive good investment making decisions because the investments then have a purpose. When you have no purpose, how do you know what to do? Yep. If you just come in and say, give me an investment plan. And I say, well, what do you need an investment plan for? You say, it doesn't matter. Just, I need an investment plan. If I'm a fiduciary, if I'm somebody who has to have a, a, a prudent process, how do I even do that? If I don't know what I'm investing for, how do I put together a prudent portfolio to achieve something that's undefined? Yep. But yet that's most of the time what's happening. And we're doing it backwards because there's a million people out there that want to take your money and invest mm -hmm. it for you. Yep. And there's very, very few people out there that really just want to help you understand how to use your money better, invest it where you want to invest it. Yep. Well, yeah. and I think it, it's it's... It's helping people understand that your investments are a tool. They're not the driver of the conversation. We have spent episode after episode talking to you about what we have learned, discovered, and implemented on our team to have give people a different kind of experience working with a financial planner. If you've ever worked with a financial advisor before, uh, typically why you would meet with them is there is maybe a, a promise or a delivery of doing things for less of an expense. We can save you money right? The conversation is still about investments. If you move your money here, you can pay us less of a fee. We have some good investments, but it's never asking the questions that you just talked about. What else that makes up the plan? Very few people actually have financial plans. They have investment accounts. They have uh, an advisor, somebody they golf with, somebody that they've known for years or referred to. And in that very first conversation, the getting to know you kind of meeting, it's how much money do you have? Let me see your statements. Okay, here's what we could do differently. And there's never been any questions asked about what makes you you. Right. So I think it's also helpful for putting into context for most people listening to this. If you've never worked with a financial planner before, you're going to want to find somebody that has a fiduciary obligation to work in your best interests, uh, that is not being prone to sell products, but to help understand who and what's important to you to put these plans in place because you want to retire someday. So what are the pieces you have? Who are the people that are important to you? What kind of cash flow are we looking at? Now, how do your investments support those things? After you've built that baseline of what a good financial planning consists of, then the investments will help add purpose to what you just said, Travis. If we know you have a pension, social security, then what do you actually need from your investment accounts to live the life you want to live? That's that rainy day money. What are the bills you have to pay? Then you can understand, okay, now how is this money being invested? But unfortunately, the financial services world has done a disservice to people by making it about your investments, your returns, the investments mm -hmm. that you have. So there's a lot of people that have never actually built a financial plan, taking into account tax management, yep. philanthropic giving, legacy uh, gifting for your kids. It's, it's all about the investments. We meet a few times a year. Every time we meet, we look at my value of my money, if it's gone up or down, what the percentage is, and uh, what we're forecasting out to the future. That's not planning. That's simply just owning investments. So there's a lot of people that get tied up on what the investment return is without understanding, like you said, the opposite approach, which is building a baseline 
or a good financial plan that helps you make good investment decisions? Yeah, good planning. What you're going to experience is 80 to 90% of the time is on the intangible value of working through life mm-hmm. and how that impacts your finances and how to get your money in line with that. Yep. I had a number of conversations with different people over the years where year in and year out, they're you know, retaining us to do work for them. And they'll say something like, you know, the, the annual fees do, I don't know, remind me again, you know, what we're doing here with this. And then we go through the meeting and we talk about some things that they're, they're dealing with challenges with, you know, coming up with enough money to plan a family vacation with the grandkids. They're going to Europe or something or um, feeling guilty about um, um, overspending or debating on, you know, whether or not to put their life, their house in a trust or in life use to protect for their kids and all these other issues that people have as, as, you know, life goes on and we go through them and they go, oh yeah, now I remember, this is great. Yep. Keep me on the schedule for the next meeting because you don't see it on a statement. It doesn't show up anywhere. It's the kind of like, you know, back to the do it yourself or thing. That's the stuff that it's confidence. It's walking out the door and going, I'm on the right track. I'm making good decisions. I think we over-focus on the investments because it's at least something somebody can put in front of you. But it, it it really should, the investment part is the last 10 or 15, maybe 20 minutes, depending on how dynamic your investment plan is. That's it. Because most of the stuff, you don't really even understand what they're, what they're using all kinds of investment jargon and stuff. You don't even really understand what it is. And anybody can do it, you know? And yes, there's difference. There's, there's definitely a difference between different investment programs out there, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. It's, Creating the plan in the first place that sets the the foundation or the the standards that that investment programs needs to be meeting. That's where all the value is. That should be eighty percent of the time because, frankly, if you don't have that, you'll never really truly know if you're being successful with your investment program. Mm-hmm. Because even if you do well, let's just say you do really well, you're fortunate, and you just make a ton of money. How are you going to know you couldn't have done better? Right. And what's it all for then too? You have a ton of money. Now, what do you do with it? Yep. You'll never, you know, I mean, it just, you get, you end up getting paralyzed. I've, I've got, I've had with clients like that that are just paralyzed. They've done so well. They got this big pool of money. They come work with us. There was never a plan on what to do with it. So it's just hanging out there and the tax man's coming. You know, the tax, we're, we're talking about a year and a year out. We keep checking off the years going, here's the tax bill. And we can start mapping it out now. These taxes are coming. You got less and less time to plan on what to do with that money before the taxes start to hit you. And they're going to hit you like a sledgehammer. And it's like, but there was never any emphasis for 30, 40 years. Never ever any um, emphasis on it. I had one client, we did their planning. We did a estate plan. Their estate plan was really kind of messed up. And we redid it. He's like, I worked with an advisor for 35 years and never once talked about these issues. And he's like, you just, you know, the, the way that we had done it, um, had really tied it together with some really deep personal goals of his. And he was shocked. And I'm like, but that's like, what were you paying for? You know, if they were supposedly your financial advisor, no. Okay. So they were your investment advisor. Okay. I got that. They weren't the financial advisor. Yep. You know, that's the difference. 
Big difference there. And I think what we've been trying to do in the course of this conversation is empower you to understand that conventional wisdom is a conversation starter, but it's not a means to an end. There's more involved. Uh, Good financial planning helps you make good investment decisions. So whether you feel like you're on track or not, we hope that this um, conversation today about this magic number when it comes to retirement, you have a little bit more context in terms of how to apply these principles, these thoughts, uh, and these ideas to your life because it's your money and it's your life. As always, thanks for stopping by. And until next time, thank you. Thanks for listening. Ready to ditch the suits? Remember, it's your money and your life. For more information, visit seedpg.com. That's seedpg.com. If this podcast has impacted you, we ask that you subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. And be sure to share with a friend.